statements on the back of this van was prominently displayed at the center of the hedge and boldly stated, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. It was obvious to me that the owner of the van took the Bible seriously and conscientiously adhered to biblical directives. Uh, such devotion to biblical, uh, to, to the major texts of Christianity should certainly be applauded. After all, I'm myself a devoted Christian who accepts the Bible and try to follow the, its precepts as best as I can. I read my Bible every day and uh, try to live up to its standards. But as I was overtaking the van on the freeway, I turned my head to the right and I look at the driver and our eyes met for a moment. And I wondered at that stage, if I ever had a chance to meet with that particular person, that driver, just the two of us, two people committed to the word of God, how much would we really agree on? Most likely it would be not much. Apart from general Christian beliefs like uh, the death of Jesus on the cross, that God exists, the Bible is inspired word of God, and, and so on, we probably have plenty to disagree on. Perhaps even our disagreements would preclude us from worshiping in the same community. The fact that my hypothetical meeting with the driver of the van would most likely result in various disagreements, perhaps even strong disagreements, shows the limitation of that uh, statement that you see, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, such declaration, as you see here, uh, it initially conveys the feeling of deep piety. Ultimately, it proves to be hollow and selfish premise, a premise that promises a lot but does not deliver. This is because a simplistic approach to scripture does not take into consideration the very complex set of conditions and circumstances that guide human encounter with the word of God. Fundamentally, such approach does not take into consideration the issues that are the main topic of this conference, the worldview. And it goes without saying that your worldview makes a significant difference when it comes to biblical interpretation. To illustrate the problem, I would like to go back to a issue that at one point in the history of the United States deeply divided this society. Uh, the issue that I will address is very challenging, controversial, and difficult topic even today. It left scars on American society that are not healed to this day. The point of this presentation is not to justify what happened, but to, to illustrate the dangers of mishandling the word of God and how worldview fits into this. So, some time ago, I went to the library, I was searching for something completely different, and quite accidental, accidentally, I found a set of fascinating documents. Uh, I read those documents, and I found it at face value, and if I didn't know better, I would find what I found in those documents quite compelling and very biblical, and I would like to explore with you some of those arguments today. So, I'm going to talk about slavery. It is historically indubitable that many people in the 19th century, United States, believed that the Bible supported institution of slavery. It was just accepted in some quarters of this country. And if you were a true Christian, they believed, 
uh, if you're a true Christian, you would have, to, and if you believe that Bible was the revelation of God, you would inescapably come to this conclusion. It was believed that abolitionist cost was basically established on human philosophy and not on the testimony of the scripture. And the fact that a significant segment of the 19th century American society, mostly in the northern states, objected to slavery, was definitely viewed as a result of shifting cultural conditions rather than faithfulness to the word of God. Simply stated, the choice was Christ or culture. And the southerners were convicted that they choosing Christ, as you shall see. So, James Thornwell, in 1861, he was a Presbyterian minister, he wrote this. Opposition to slavery has never been the offspring of the Bible. The parties in this conflict are not merely abolitionists and slaveholders. They are atheists, socialists, communists, red republicans, Jacobins on one side, and the friends of order and regulated freedom on the other. In one word, the world is the battleground, Christianity and atheism, the combatants and progress of humanity is at stake. Atheism is abolitionism, in, according to Thornwell. In other words, you either agree that slavery is biblical and not sin, or be charged with unfaithfulness to biblical revelation or even blatant atheism. After all, Thornwell and others like him argued that the Bible testified to the fact that slavery is a divine institution. So let's look at the, some of the evidence that they were using to support their position. It is only a sample. I can't present any more at this time. So they would go to Abraham, for example, and they would state that Abraham owned slaves and was never condemned for the practice of owing slaves by God. You can look at Ten Commandments. You will find out that the Fourth Commandment, in the Fourth Commandment, you will find out that uh, those who obey God should give a day of rest to their slaves. The Tenth Commandment tells us that we should not covet somebody else's slaves. On this basis, uh, Rabbi M.J. Rafal, who jumped into the fray and the debate in 1861, he wrote this. The Tenth Commandment places slaves under the same protection as any other species of lawful property. That the Ten Commandments are the word of God and as such of the very highest authority is acknowledged by Christians as well as by Jews. How dare you, in the face of the sanction and protection afforded to slave property in the Ten Commandments, how dare you denounce slaveholding as a sin? When you remember that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, the men with whom the Almighty conversed, with whose names he emphatically connects his own most holy name, and to whom he vouchsafed to give the character of perfect, upright, fearing God and eschewing evil, that all these men were slaveholders, does it not strike you that you are guilty of something very little short of blasphemy? Well, he was reading the book of Leviticus. And in Leviticus chapter 25, and verse 39 to verse 46, you will find a regulation of slavery. But the text goes a little bit more uh, than just regulation. In verse 44 of chapter 25, it states, your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you, and so on. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property, but you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. 
the implications were quite clear for the Southern theologians. While there's a regulation of slavery and you have to take care of the Hebrew slaves, you can ruthlessly rule over the foreign slaves. We do not have time to explore all the passages, so let me move into the New Testament for a while. When the slave owners read the New Testament, they noticed that Jesus did not condemn slavery. Uh, in, in, uh, in the speeches, in the, in the Gospels, we didn't, they did not find him doing so. In fact, he used slavery sometimes as an example. In one case, in Matthew 8 and uh, verse 9, the centurion is not condemned for having a slave. Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Centurion is commended rather than condemned. Uh, Jesus used the illustration of slavery in his parables several times. In Luke 17, 7, he, there's a parable about a slave who comes from the field, will he sit at the same table with the master? So they came up with this idea that God, th that Jesus did not condemn slavery. And then they read the slave-owning uh, theologians, they read the New Testament, and they found that apostles did not appear to condemn slavery either. In fact, they used the statements of Paul in a very interesting way. They use the first Corinthians chapter seven and verse seventeen. Each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him or her, and to which God called him or her too. So, if you are a slave, you should stay a slave. You should not attempt to change your position. That's what they believed. They would read such verses in found, passages found in first uh, Corinthians twelve thirteen. For we are all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. We are all given the one spirit to drink. And they were saying that those particular passages are speaking about spiritual equality and nothing else. The same thought they saw in Galatians 3.28, where we have this famous statement, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave or free. They would explain it away, and they would say that this verse is not talking about a social situation, that there's nothing in it about social situation. This is all about equality, that slaves and their owners can be saved, but that obviously, according to them, this verse did not address the spiritual equality. And then you would find, they would find other verses in Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9, and also in Colossians 3. You would find, they would find passages like this, and they would build a theology on these slaves. Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity on heart, and so on. Slave wholeheartedly as you were serving the Lord, not man. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. And they would find verse in 1 Timothy 6.1, all who are under yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These things you are to teach and urge on them. So they saw this as Paul making an inspired command. In Titus 2.9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, try to please them. 
so that they will make teaching of our God's Savior attractive. And then we find the letter to Philemon when Paul sends Onesimus to Philemon, but he's telling Philemon, treat him as a brother, but the slave-owning theologians would say that that did not dissolve the relationship between owner and the slave. How about Peter? Peter in 1 Peter verse, chapter 2, verse 18 said, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. So on the basis of this particular verse, this is just a selection that I found, the slave-owning theologians uh, came to certain conclusions. And the conclusions for them were those. Scripture regulates slavery but does not condemn it. And they were deeply believing in this. The apostolic practice does not contradict the law of Moses. Slaves are asked to accept their position with humility and peaceful heart. Within Christian homes, slaves enjoyed special privileges, but the owner-slave relationship was not dissolved. Those were the conclusions of the, uh, those theologians who supported slavery. So on the basis of such convictions, it is not surprising that Richard Furman, a Baptist minister in 1861, would write something like this. Had the holding of slaves been a moral evil, it cannot be supposed that the inspired apostles who feared not the faces of men and were ready to lay down their lives in the cause of their God would have tolerated for a moment in the Christian church. And Henry Hopkins, Episcopal minister, in 1864, wrote this. The teachings of scripture on the matter of slavery are plain. Who are we that in our modern wisdom presume to set aside the word of God and invent ourselves a higher law than those holy scriptures which are given to us and as a light to our feet and a lamp to our paths in the darkness of a sinful and polluted world? I want to draw your attention to this to two words, plain, Okay, all southerners believe that we just need to read the Bible, open Bible, read it plainly. This is the best way, okay, to read the Bible. And the second one is the higher law. What, what is this higher law? They're referring to two things, the golden rule and love your neighbor. These theologians believed that uh, abolishing slavery would actually go against those principles, against the golden rule and loving uh, your neighbor. Ending slavery, argued, could calm the established religious, social, and economic order and potentially could destroy society, especially as slavery, they believe, was divinely instituted. So God could not speak those golden rule and Jesus could not say love your neighbor and could think of slavery. It was impossible. Therefore, a famous uh, theologian, Calvinist pastor, Robert Louis Dabney, wrote this. I cannot conceive of any duty arising from the command to love my neighbor as myself, which compels me to inflict a ruinous injury on that neighbor. And such would be immediate freedom to the slave. Charles Hodge, a famous Princetonian scholar, wrote this. The abolitionist cause is based on mere impulses of feeling and a blind imitation of cultural trends. If the present course of the abolitionists is right, then the course of Christ and the apostles is wrong. Did you catch that? 
If the present course of the abolitionist is right, then the course of Christ and the apostles is wrong. In other words, Christ or culture, they believed with their whole heart that they following Christ. Here's Robert L. Dabney again. Here's our policy then to push the Bible argument continually to drive abolitionism to the wall, to compel it to assume an anti-Christian position. By doing so, we compel the whole Christianity on the North to array itself on our side. And final quotes from John Bell Robinson. He wrote this to the Northerners. The teachings of both the Old and New Testament of scriptures are so plain, righteous, consistent, and palpable that I cannot exercise a sufficient stretch of charity towards such men to believe them sincere. But infidelity is at the bottom of the whole scheme of abolitionism. Those who do not understand such plain teachings are not fit for the gospel ministry and should be silenced for their ignorance. How would you respond to John Bell Robinson? I think that Oliver Cromwell, writing in 1650 to the Church of Scotland, would give a good advice to him. I beseech you in the bowel of Christ, think it possible you may be mistaken. But they were so convicted of, of this that in 1861, uh, the Southern theologians decided to put together something that is known today as Southern Address to Christendom. It was published on May 16, 1861. And foundational premise of that, uh, of that document was that the only rule of judgment should be the written word of God. As believers, we should know nothing on the, of the intuition of reason or the deductions of philosophy except those reproduced in the sacred canon. Do you see what's happening here? They really upholding the Bible. Okay, Bible above reason, and, and, and look what happened. So I'll give you a couple of paragraphs from that document. It's a fascinating read, and I encourage you to dig it out and read it for yourself and contemplate on what they're actually writing. So just a couple of paragraphs. The antagonism of northern and southern sentiment on the subject of slavery lies at the root of all the difficulties which have resulted in the dismemberment of the Federal Union and involved us in the horrors of the unnatural war. And here we may venture to lay before the Christian world our views as a church upon the subject of slavery. Please listen to us. Please listen. Why fight about it? Please listen to us. Shall, shall our names... Of, we have said enough to vindicate the position of the Southern Church. We have assumed no new attitude. We stand exactly where the Church of God has always stood from Abraham to Moses, from Moses to Christ, from Christ to the reformers, and from the reformers to ourselves. We stand upon the foundation of the prophets and apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Shall we be excluded from the fellowship of our brethren in other lands because we dare not depart from the chart of our faith? Shall we be branded with the stigma of reproach because we cannot consent to corrupt the word of God to suit the intuitions of an infidel philosophy. 
Shall our names be cast out as evil and the finger of scorn pointed at us because we utterly refused to break our communion with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with Moses, David, and Isaiah, with apostles, prophets, and martyrs, with all the noble army of confessors who have gone from glory to glory, from slave-holding countries and from a slave-holding church without ever having dreamed that they were living in mortal sin by conniving at slavery in the midst of them? If so, we shall take consolation in the cheering consciousness that the master has accepted us. We may be denounced, despised, and cast out of the synagogues of our brethren. But while they are wrangling about the distinctions of men according to the flesh, we shall go forward in our divine work and confidently, and confidently anticipate that in the great day, as the consequence of our humble labors, we shall meet millions of glorified spirits who have come up from the bondage of earth to a nobler freedom that human philosophy ever dreamed of. Others, if they please, may spend their time in declaiming on the tyranny of earthly master. It will be our aim to resist the real tyrants which oppress the soul, sin and Satan. These are the foes against whom we shall find employment enough to wage a successful war. And to this holy war, it is the purpose of our church to devote itself with redoubled energy. We feel that the souls of our slaves are the solemn trust and we shall strive to present them faultless and complete before the presence of God. Indeed, last quote, as we contemplate their condition in the southern states in, and contrast it with that of their fathers before them and that of their brethren in the, brethren in the present day in their native land, we cannot but accept, as, accept it as a gracious providence that they have been brought in such numbers to our shores and redeemed from the bondage of barbarism and sin. Slavery to them has certainly been overruled for the greatest good. It has been a link in the wondrous chain of providence through which many sons and daughters have been made heirs of the heavenly inheritance. So, the theologians who wrote these words were convicted that God would never sanction immoral actions. Therefore, on the issue of slavery, they were either for God or against God. In view of these findings here, of this reading which you just saw, they reasoned how could North possibly condemn them, condemn the southern states for defending the rights of owning slaves. They, they biblical foundations to them seemed unsaleable and they were convicted it was, going, it was worth going to war and splitting the nation. They were so biblical and they, yet they were so wrong, so wrong. As a result, according to recent, some recent estimates, almost one million people lost their lives during the civil war. If you are interested in, in an in-depth analysis of those arguments and the rebuttal to the arguments, you can read my paper that was published um, uh, some time ago. So what does this have to do with worldviews? What we have to do here in a simplistic way, I could say, we have two different worldviews, two different ways of reading the Bible. On one hand, you've got a pro-slavery way of reading the Bible. On the other hand, you've got anti-slavery reading of the Bible. Uh, on the left-hand side, you've got arguments, God is the author of the Bible. Slavery is a divine institution. God never condemned 
the patriarchs for having slaves and so on. The apostles wrote extensively about slavery and so on. All those arguments were used um, in defense of slavery. On the other hand, you've got anti-slavery, hermeneutic anti-slavery way of reading the Bible, that humans were created in God's image, Galatians 3.28. I cannot even imagine how could they stop at the, at the verse like this and say that this only relates to salvation. For me, the gospel always ends in a social action. They could not understand that. Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61, all those verses that were used by abolitionist uh, writers against slavery. And I, in my paper, I talked about, I termed it for better or worse, uh, static hermeneutic or plain or literalistic approach. And the other one, dynamic hermeneutic or literal, search for principles. So the question is, what determines, what determines the approach that we use, uh, how, which what determines the approach we use in reading of the passages of the Bible? And the answer is, it is our worldview. It is our worldview. So another question is, what informs our worldview? And well, our worldview is informed by a variety of factors. It is informed by sinful nature, by upbringing, by character, by personality, by culture, by education, and so on. So how does this work? You see, the southerners of the 1800s were programmed, somehow programmed by their culture to accept slavery. You know, when those children were growing up in, the, in their homes, they saw nannies, they saw, they saw cooks who were black, they saw servants, they saw people in the fields who were working for them. They learned about benefits of slavery at home, at school, they learned about church, in church, they learned that economy and their well-being dependent on slavery, and they used the Bible to support their worldview. They believed that their worldview was deeply biblical. And now let, come, let us come to our modern world. You see, we all grew up in culture that condemned slavery. We learned it at school, home, and at church. Slavery is absolutely repulsive to us. It's repulsive to me. Abraham Lincoln is a hero, not a villain. Very few people would be pro-slavery today. Even non-Christians are against slavery. Today we are programmed against slavery. I'm Polish by birth. I grew up in Poland and I attended atheistic communist schools because there were no Christian and Adventist school, schools. And I remember our teachers talking, teaching us about American slavery, how horrendous it was. And there were atheists. There were non-Christians. So, as a young man, I, by, by the time I hit my late teenage years, I read the Bible a couple of times at least. I knew the New Testament. And you know what? Somehow, I've ne I never saw those Bible passages about slavery. Somehow, in my reading of the Bible, I would skip them because they were irrelevant to me, irrelevant to my current situation. So I did not see those things in the Bible. I never heard a sermon on those passages in church. Never once. So my worldview programmed me to see or consider those passages in a different way and reject slavery. How can we as Christians solve the problem of our worldview? 
the problem of our presupposition. I think it can be done only on our knees. It can only be done when we come down on our knees and recognize that we all come into the scripture with certain set of beliefs, that those beliefs can be changed and shaped by the Holy Spirit when we ask Holy Spirit to change those beliefs. And as we are changed by the scripture, as our presuppositions and worldviews cleanse, we can see clearly what is happening, what is God actually trying to say to us. So what are the lessons? What are the conclusions? First of all, we must be aware that our worldview has a strong influence upon our hermeneutical approach. You see, when we read different passages of the Bible, without even knowing, we apply different hermeneutical, hermeneutical principles. Something that our program is allowing us to do or, or forcing us to do sometimes, and we have to be aware of this. We cannot live without presuppositions. It's a necessary part of life, but we can ask God to purify our presuppositions and purify our worldview. And secondly, sometimes we have to humbly recognize that the cultural various values of a given society may at times align with biblical values. We must be open to such a possibility. I would like to leave you tonight with a quote from, uh, from Acts of the Apostles, uh, page 459. It was not the apostles' work to overturn arbitrarily or suddenly the established order of society. To attempt this would be to prevent the success of the gospel, but he taught principles which struck at the very foundation of slavery and which, if carried into effect, would surely undermine the whole system. Thank you very much.